great song, isn't it? Just amazing. That's why I call it grace, because it's amazing. Um, you ever wonder what it's going to be like on the day that you're ushered into the presence of God? As we were singing the song, and then that's why I asked Stu to sing Amazing Grace. Because I, in the passage we're going to look at, and where my heart's been this morning from our first service and through Sunday school, have you ever stopped to think what it's going to be like when you're ushered into the presence of God? Through the years, our church, like every church, has gone through some tragedies, haven't we? Suddenly someone snatched out of our fellowship or a family goes through an incredible heartbreak with a sudden goodbye. And we, uh, we felt the pain of that on this side. Boy, there's just so much pain and tragedy for a pastor who has to somehow sit with the family and then find some kind of words to say. Uh, it's really hard, isn't it? But for that person who suddenly was snatched, have you ever thought what it's like to be in the presence, ushered into the presence of God? Hmm? That's kind of what we're going to be talking about today. I want you to take your Bible and guess where you're going? Jude. Go back to Jude, okay? I Hey, Jude. Yeah, go back to Jude. We're going to look at the last two verses in this incredible, incredible book, except we're not going to get through again. Uh, I'll tell you, gang, this is, the, this is an incredible book. And this week, I, uh, I began to look at the last two verses. My, my thought was to be through, uh, but I want to tell you, by the time I got through with verse 24, I said, there's no way. Uh, and, and besides, verse 25 is an incredible verse of praise. And I, I, just, and I just don't want to skip through that. In fact, I, I mentioned to our first service that, that in most of the commentaries I read, it seems like when you're about through with a study, you try to rush through the ending so you can get on to something else. And commentators tend to do that as well. And what kind of blew my mind after I had gotten kind of my idea together and what I felt like God wanted us for today and, and began to flesh it out a little bit, I, I got to reading some of the commentators and what blew my mind was most of them blow right by verse 25. And it, it kind of convicted me a little bit. Out of this entire book, everything moves toward the climax in verse 24 and 25 and it just seems like people blow right by 25. And I don't want us to do that. Next week, I want us to spend time tearing apart verse 25. Because I want to tell you, gang, the Bible's full of doxologies. And the Bible's full of benedictions. And the Bible's full of great uh, endings of praise. But I don't think there's a better ending in all of the Bible than Jude. And so what I want to do today is I want to look at primarily verse 24 and, uh, and then next week verse 25, okay? Now before we begin, I, I want to throw out some questions to you. Don't forget the context of the letter, the study. 
Uh, Jude's writing to really heavily persecuted Christians. They're just not in a furnace. Gang, they're in a really hot furnace. It's, it's tough out there, okay? Uh, we're immune to that here, but it's that hot in Iran and Iraq, those kind of places. And Jude's people that he was writing to was in the midst of all that, okay? And so I, I, wanna, I want us to begin moving into verse 24 with, with some questions I want to give you four statements, and then I'm going to share with you two quick things from verse 24. Question number one is this. If you are in a hot furnace of affliction, if persecution is very difficult, if you see your church being infiltrated with false teaching and loose living, and if you have a sense that maybe some of the foundations of your belief are beginning to crumble a little bit and things are beginning to get a, a little shaky and you're wondering or maybe even have a sense that you're about to lose your church, what is the one thing that you need more than anything? I mean, if you have a sense that, that there's, a, there's something, there's a rumbling going on, and, and you're not sure what it is, but it seems to be shaking some of the, the, the foundations of everything you believed. And it's infiltrated the church, which Jude says it has. And there are those in the church seeking to lead people astray, and Jude said they are. What do you think is the one thing you need more than anything else? Anybody want to take a guess? I'm sorry, our faith, okay, let's, that's kind of where I'm going. Somebody say security. You're right, security. I mean, if everything's beginning to shake a little bit, don't you want to be safe? Don't you, don't you want to know that you're okay, that your kids are okay, if you're blessed with grandchildren, that your grandchildren are okay. Aren't you, don't you really want to know that your church is okay? See, that's what Jude is ending his letter with. And he's talked about some hard things, man. He's talked about the crud. He's talked about deceivers. He's talked about creepers who have crept in and, and they were unaware and they led them astray and They've kind of tried to uh, infiltrate their passions, ungodly passions on other people. And they, they, they could have a sense. It's all crumbling and Jude ends with safety. Jude ends with security. And that's why I think verse 24 needs to be dealt with by itself. And then we direct our praise to God in verse 25. Would you stand in honor of God's word? I know it's just a couple verses. But if Jesus were to come back right now and we were sitting down reading his Bible, I'm afraid of that. So let's stand, okay? <laughs> now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling, to make you stand in the presence, get that, make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time 
and now forever. And the word amen means so be it, so let it be. Father, I, I, I'm humbled by the passage. It's an incredible thought for a believer in Jesus Christ in the midst of furnaces of affliction and sin-cursed world and our own depravity of our own hearts to one day stand in the presence of you, a holy, a righteous God. And to stand, Father, to stand blameless with great joy. I don't know that any preacher can do justice to this verse. But God, I'm going to try. Because I believe it's a verse that every believer needs to grab hold of. And make it their motto until the Lord Jesus Christ comes in his glory. In Christ's name I pray. And all God's people said, amen. Thanks, be seated. Now, let me tell you what I want to do. I ask you a few questions, try to set the stage. I want to give you four statements. The statements are up on the screen for you. And they're statements, I believe, that somehow, if you're going to understand the ending of this letter, you're going to have to get your head around, okay? If you can get your head around these four statements, then I believe when we tear down verse 24, It'll make some sense to you, okay? Eternal life, by the way, eternal life begins the moment you're saved, not in heaven. Isn't that right? I told our preteens last Wednesday, don't wait to heaven to say eternal life. It begins the moment God saves you right now, okay? Eternal life, which begins the moment is saved, first of all, is about his authority, not our ability. That's why Jude begins with now to him. And he wants his readers to know that salvation and security is not about anything good in us or our ability to make it happen or and to keep it happening. But salvation is up to God. It's his choice to draw us into a relationship with him. It's not a, about a, a decision we make. It's about a response that we make to his decision. Who is it that convicts us of sin? It's God. Who is it that draws us into relationship? It's God. Who is it that regenerates our heart? And who is it that gives us faith? And who is it that gives us repentance? It's God. Again, we just respond to the gracious call of God. It's about his right. It's about his authority. Salvation must be God-centered, not man-centered. And if you've been taught a man-centered salvation by doing your best and living your best, you're never going to understand this verse. Because this verse clearly sets forth the sovereignty and the glory of God. It's about his authority, not your ability. Number two, it's about his mercy, not human merit. When God saves and God secures us, he does it from his perspective, from his tender mercy, in a sense from his sympathy, for caring for us, not in response to anything good he sees in us. Because, beloved, 
There's nothing good that God could ever see in us. That's what makes verse 24 amazing to me. There's nothing in my life that would make God look at me, that would make God desire to save me. There's nothing there. That's why it's based upon his mercy, not my merit. Number three, eternal life is based upon his declaring you blameless, not faultless. Now grab hold of that, gang. Salvation and security has no basis in humans, not only not being good, but able to reach some kind of sinless perfection. You see, when a man is saved, he is justified, the Bible says. He is declared blameless, not faultless, not without sin before God. He is justified, forgiven on the basis of the cross and the substitutionary atonement of the Lord Jesus Christ. Our sin is covered, and we are presented before a holy God, covered by the sin of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's incredibly important. And the fourth statement I want to make to you is this. Eternal life is about his glory, not your goodness. Salvation belongs to him. He gets the praise for salvation because it was his idea from the very beginning. And this truth slaps modern day preaching in the face. We have an idea going around that I'm really a good person, that I'm worth being saved so that I can be good enough so God somehow will respond and save me. No. Salvation is about the glory he gets in saving a sinner. Now let me give you a couple statements. Look at, look at verse 24 with me. Notice, first of all, the writer tells us that he is our source. Jude says, now to him. And I believe it's important for people to understand that Christianity is an objective religion, not a subjective religion. And hang with me, don't lose me. Christianity is an objective religion, not a subjective religion. Christianity's reality is not on the inside. It's not a feeling we have. It's not an opinion we have. But Christianity's reality is based upon a person, Jesus Christ alone and his perfection. It is Christ upon the cross and what he did on the cross. The atonement of the Lord Jesus as he died on the cross for your sin and for my sin. Now I understand there has to be a sense in which there are facts that we believe. I understand the head. There's a sense by which the heart understands that, that this facts that Jesus is who he said he was and died on the cross is beneficial to me. But, oh, beloved, if a person's going to be saved, that person's got to look to somebody else. He's got to look objectively at a cross. And him who died on the cross, and him who shed his blood on the cross, that's why I say Christianity is objective. It's with Christ. It's about Christ alone. It is he who died sacrificially, rose again gloriously, sits at the right hand making intercession, and one day soon coming back for his church. 
It's unto him, Jude says. But not only is he our source, he's our strength. Look at verse 24. Now to him, and notice what he says, who is able. Now that word able is an important word in Scripture. It's used several times, always referring to the ability and the power of God. It's actually the strongest word for, for force in the Bible or strength in the Bible. We get the English word dynamite from it. They didn't have, of course, that back then. But the guy who invented dynamite was looking for the strongest word to, to, to give a word to dynamite, and that's where he came up with dynamite, dynamo. And it's a word that refers to the ability of God alone. Salvation, sure. You're saved because of God alone. Security, sure. You are kept saved by God alone. And beloved, listen, when you're in a hot furnace as these readers were, it's good to know that truth, that God is omnipotent, that he's all-powerful. Let me give you some of the flavor of how the word is used. Romans 16, 25, God is able to establish you. The word means to, to build a foundation. God's able to give you a foundation. Jews in 2 Corinthians 9, 8, God is able to make all grace abound to you. Ephesians 3, 20, God is able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond all that we ask or think. Hebrews 7.25, God is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him. Do you see how Jude's readers, in their deep affliction, had to believe that the God they believed in was all-powerful? Even if they couldn't explain it, even if they didn't understand it all, even if they didn't quite get, be able to get their head around all that was going on in their life. They had to believe that God was able. And I want to say to you today, I don't know all that's going on in your life, but you have to believe that God is able to do whatever you need in every situation you find yourself. God is able to save. God is able to secure. And gang, I don't care what's happening in our world. God is able. There's an incredible doctrine that, that we talk about sometimes. It's the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. And it's a doctrine which simply says that those who are saved will persevere in their faith. Now, there'll be some seasons. We all have our seasons, right? Churches have their season. And there may be some times in your life where you kind of slip a little bit and struggle a little bit, but the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints says that those who are saved will persevere through their seasons, and they'll never lose what God gives. There's another doctrine we don't talk about an awful lot, but it's as critically important, and that's the doctrine of the preservation of the saints, and that's what Jude is talking about in our text. Not only do those who belong to God persevere, but he's wanting them to know that those who God saves, God preserves until the end. Gang, that's important. That you are not just going to persevere in your faith, but God's going to keep you saved. God's going to preserve you 
to the very end. Several years ago, we, uh, we, I knew a guy, and one Sunday I was preaching on eternal security. Of course, you know us Baptists, we like to say once saved, always saved, and I, I never have really liked that term that much. It's true, but I just, wait, I don't like it. I would much rather say eternal secure, that we're secure in Christ, right? Because what it does is shift the responsibility over to God. Because I can't keep myself saved. God keeps me saved. You follow what I'm saying? So I was preaching on eternal security. And I made a statement that really offended him. Um, he eventually got over it. Um, but he, I mean, dude, he, now, you know, I'm not that big. And, you know, I, I thought, oh, I'm in, I'm in trouble. Here was my statement. I said to him, you know, I'm so sorry there are those today who believe that they can lose their salvation. I would hate to live my life thinking that something I said or something I did or something I thought would make me lose my salvation and I'd have to get saved all over again. And in the course of the sermon, I said, the problem with that is there's a lot of times, if that's true, there's a lot of times I'd have to get saved all over again. Because I know you look, I mean, I know you think I look like an angel, but if you were to call my wife, sometimes I say things I shouldn't say. Yeah. Sometimes I do things I shouldn't do. Yeah. Sometimes I think things I shouldn't think. She doesn't know anything about it either, by the way, you know. And so if I'm going to lose what he gives, then I'm going to have to get it all over again. And it's a never-ending cycle. And I'm up and down on a roller coaster. And he got offended. He, he came from a, I know, a Pentecostal background. And that's okay. I love him and he loved me. But gang, what Jude is saying is that we persevere, but God preserves. And notice how he shakes it out for us. Now to him who is able to do what? Keep you from stumbling. That's an incredible statement. He keeps us from stumbling. He makes us stand in God's presence. You grab it? He keeps us from falling down. He helps us stand up. He keeps us from losing what he alone gives us. And lo and behold, believer, he presents us into the presence of the Father gloriously, blamelessly, based upon Christ's covering of blood with great joy. Now, I want you to do something with me, okay? Close your eyes for just a moment, just a moment. Don't go to sleep. And I want you to think about your life. But don't think about the good stuff, okay? Think about some of those not-so-good times, okay? Maybe something you said, or maybe something you did. You got it? Okay, now look at me. If that was presented before God, what do you think the outcome of that would be? I think if God were to judge me 
based upon what I just grabbed hold of in my head. There was no way that God would allow me into his presence. But do you see what Jude said? He'll keep us from stumbling. We'll never lose it. He'll make us stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy. Here's what I want to leave you with. Regardless of what you've done in the past, regardless of what you said in the past, regardless of what you may have thought in the past, that will never be presented before God. Because when God looks at you, he doesn't see you and he doesn't see your past. He sees the blood and the sacrifice of his son. Now, I don't know if that does anything to you. I think what it did to Jude's readers, it made them think, you know, I can hang in there and I can be faithful until that day. But beloved, I want to tell you what it does for me. It helps me realize that I, when I stand before God, I'm not going to stand in judgment of my sin because Jesus took the judgment of my sin. It makes me think that I, I honestly, this, there's an idea, and I may be wrong. I've been wrong a few times. There's this idea that we're going to, we're going to enter the presence of God uh, cowering and, and on our bellies crawling in. That's not what Jude says. Jude says that based upon the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, that when God accepts us, he accepts us based upon Christ. And when we enter his presence, not only does he keep us from stumbling and falling, he secures us. But beloved, we enter standing in his presence with great joy because of what Christ did on the cross. Can, can you imagine? Can you just imagine? what that day is going to be like, the moment that we enter the presence of God with joy because we've been accepted because of Christ. Those of you that have lost loved ones tragically, and the pain is almost unbearable at times, shift your thinking. Because if that loved one knows Christ, they're standing in the radiance of the Shekinah glory of God in God's presence. And the sin is buried in the depths of the sea, never to be recalled. As far as the east is from the west, has our sin been separated from us? All based upon the Lord Jesus and what he did on our behalf. I think, I think it's going to be a great time. I think it's going to be an awesome time. And I think when the radiance of his glory engulfs us, I think the praise is going to be like nothing we've ever done before. I don't know if it's going to be singing. I don't know if it's going to be shouting. I, you know, the Pentecostals may be right in this area. There may be dancing. I, I don't know. But I want to tell you one thing. Because of the blood of Christ, 
because of the atonement of Jesus Christ. It's going to be the greatest moment in eternal history when the children of God are gathered together and presented to God the Father by his son Jesus Christ. This last, in fact, verse 24 has a very strong reference to a Jewish wedding. In fact, we, God's kind of stirred by it. We may even look at that. But one of the great moments in a Jewish wedding is when after the groom has made his deal with the father. By the way, my son-in-law didn't make any deal with me. After he goes and prepares the place for his bride, he comes unexpectedly to get her. And the people begin to see him marching, and they gather around him, and, and they begin to shout, Behold, the bridegroom cometh. And all the people are shouting. And he goes in to the bride's house and snatches the bride. And he carries her into his father's home. Now grab it, church, because we're the bride. And Jesus is the groom. You with me? Are we connecting? Snatches her. Takes the bride into the presence of the father. And he presents his bride to the father. And the father accepts the bride on behalf of the son. Oh, dear Christian, you weary worn, perhaps battered and bruised up, Lonely and beaten. Sometimes wondering, will it ever end and whether it's worth it all. You bride of Christ, can I tell you, there's coming a day when the sun will come and the shout will ring forth, Behold, the bridegroom cometh and he'll snatch the church. And he'll usher the church into the presence of his Father. And he'll say, glorious. And there'll be great joy in feasting. Because on the basis of the Son, we've been accepted completely, perfectly. That's in store for those who know Jesus. Let me ask you. If that were to happen today, would you be part of the faith family, would you? If that moment were to happen where Jesus came and snatched the bride, would you be part of the bride? Has there been a time, a moment in your life when you realized, oh, my sin, how I need a Savior, Jesus is the only Savior. Now unto him who's able to keep me from stumbling, to present me fault. Have you ever been saved the Bible way from God convicting you and drawing you? Is that moment yet to be in your life when he presents you in all of the glory in the very presence of God? Blameless. Not faultless, blameless, 
because of Jesus. Let's pray together.